0: I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you Behind the Music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA host and cellist, James Jacobs, and we're talking all about the string quartet. With musical examples, we get into the details, like where did the string quartet come from, how did it evolve, and which composer made it so popular. Okay, James, I'm checking my notes here if you can. Um, let me know if I'm correct in my assessment here. A string quartet, by definition, is an ensemble of four string players. Is that correct? Pretty good so far, yes. Okay, I think in a previous life I was a hard-hitting journalist. <laughs> but maybe here's another question. What would you call an ensemble of four cellists? a cello quartet. Okay, but it's still four strings, right? It is.
1: And yeah, the nomenclature gets a little hazy for, you know, just the fact that you call a piano trio piano, violin, and cello, and not three pianos. I mean, it's just, it's just or a flute quartet, flute, violin, viola, and cello, and not four flutes.
0: But when we say string quartet today, generally we're referring to an ensemble that is two violins, viola, and cello. The instrument's Yes, things have evolved the better technology and things, but the instruments, they're the same today as they were back then in the sense of two violins, viola, and cello. It's an extremely restrictive, here's the instruments, here are the notes. And when you think of a symphony today, you have the full brass section, percussion, all these new instruments. And even in Mozart and Haydn's time, they were adding winds, doing this here, doing that there. With the string quartet, this is it. These four instruments is what you have. And it's almost like... It's a challenge from Haydn and Mozart and forward that it's almost like the judge of a composer. How well can you write for this form? It's like asking a chef to make an omelet.
1: Right. It, well, it is. And and what's, uh, what's beautiful about the string quartet is that on the one hand, it's sort of like you're writing for four of the same instrument, but it's like an organ. You're sort of, there are different sizes and it's sort of, you're just sort of expanding the palette. But... Of course, the viola and cello have their own unique qualities. And even the second violin has a unique quality to the first violin because they're playing on the lower strings, which have a different kind of resonance than the upper strings. You know, a violin that's playing a solo is different from a violin in accompaniment mode. And it's tricky because it can sound uniform, sort of, you know, you can sort of you can create this palette that just sort of washes out like, oh, it's just strings, and you can easily ignore it. So you have to, you know, keep things alive. Uh, you have to create interest uh, constantly, and you also have to th- keep in mind the, the resonance of the instruments. Um, it's, it's, you know, more than anything else, you have, it's like there's such exact qualities to whether a cello plays on the C string or on the A string. It makes all the difference in the world. Or whether a cello or a viola playing up high or a violin playing down low and they overlap... One of the things that the quartet demands is that you really have an instrument knowledge of the instruments, that, you know, and it helped that most composers, uh, you know, the major composers, a string instrument was always their second instrument after, after piano. Um, and what's interesting is that for the really great composers, they always chose the viola. When they had the choice of what to play in a, in a chamber combination, they wanted to be, as Mozart put it, in the middle of the harmony. They want, <laughs> They
0: wanted to have everything surround them. And it seems like this, like a lot of things in music, wasn't just an aha moment. Oh, here is an ensemble. Here is a brand new genre. Let's all get to work. But it seems like it kind of slowly evolved over the years, actually hundreds of years ago in the Baroque period, like the 1600s.
1: Yes. I mean, the idea of those four voices, which correspond to SATB chorus, you know, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Um, That's been around for centuries. And the string quartet evolved out of that. But it also evolved out of the trio sonata, where you had two equal voices on top and a bass on the bottom and perhaps some sort of continuo chordal instrument in the middle, uh, which was then taken over by the viola. So the string quartet Perhaps you could say it has many mothers but only one father, and we'll talk about him in a a moment. But the thing about the violin is that it can play in both the soprano and alto register. You know, two top parts played on the same instrument. Now, once upon a time, in the viol consort or when the violin band was just starting, you did have different instruments. A string quartet would have been four different sizes, uh, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. But uh, because of the versatility of the violin that made it possible to have both the first and second parts played on the same instrument.
0: So it sounds like really the Baroque trio sonata in the 1600s, early 1700s, was kind of instrumental. You had those two violins and then that continual part, which was often a cello and accompanied also with a, a harpsichord. And it sounds like that was also eventually the harpsichord was just kind of left out or it was optional and you had the cello playing this little bass line and then you added in like another soloist and it kind of just slowly morphed into this idea?
1: Yeah, um, the whole idea of Continuo I think has been a little bit misunderstood um, the, it, I mean, it's sort of like a, a jazz combo, right? I mean, ideally you would have a bass and a piano and a guitar and drums and a couple of horns or whatever else. But, you know, there are also, you go to jazz clubs and it's just a bass and a piano or a bass and a saxophone and a horn or a bass and a guitar. You know, it's all possible to do. And, you know, a really good bass player, a jazz bass player, and this is pertinent to what we're talking about, um, can play the bass in such a way that nothing feels left out, that you get the implied harmonies, the implied direction of the rhythm, and you sort of come up with different skill sets. For example, once upon a time, a cellist would have to do chords and not just a single note. So it evolved, you know, throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. But uh, certainly, yeah, a harpsichord was, you know, nice work if you can get it, you know, and for the orbo, even better. Uh, if it was just a cello or a viola da gamba and a couple of violins, nobody's stopping you from playing, you know, this this tremendous repertoire for, for trio sonatas.
0: And it seems like we should always remember, we're viewing all of this music from the lens of today in 2020. You mentioned a lot of instruments there that even I'm not so familiar with. At that time, these were all common instruments. So it wasn't just like today. It was, oh, yeah, obviously it's violins, viola, and cello. But there are a lot of options in that time. And what is, I think we have an early example here of four strings playing together. This is something by Bianchiri? Yeah. This is
1: from the late 17th century. No, late 16th century. And at this time, the violin was considered sort of the people's instrument. It was something you would play outside, something to play, you know, for dancing, and also something you'd play for theater music. You know, you could walk around while playing the violin. You know, there was the violin dancing master, the violinist who would uh, call the steps while playing uh, the violin, and that's so. There's an old tradition with that. And what was happening in in Italy was where you had uh, string bands of violins violas tenor violins and there wasn't really a cello then but there was a bass violin so that was kind of the equivalent um of it and they would play uh these fantasies and uh, dance settings that composers would write and that was it was a favorite pastime of composers at that time to that was sort of the birth of of, say, what became the minuet in the classical symphony, the idea of stylizing a dance form so that it was concert music. And this was sort of the beginning of that. And it was also a kind of uh, creating a kind of bridge between, between vocal music, vocal repertory, because a lot of this stuff could also be sung, and dance music and instrumental music. And It was all sort of coming together at the end of the Renaissance.
0: Okay, let's hear a little example of this idea by Bianchiri. That definitely sounds like music that you would see in a movie accompanying this, you know, old, very traditional kind of dance. And I think as we go along, we're going to hear kind of a holdover of these dance ideas in the string quartet.
1: Oh, absolutely! What was um, what's so interesting about that selection you just played is that on the one hand, you can kind of hear the roots or a sort of pre-echo of what the string quartet would, could actually become with you know, with this sort of conversation between all four voices. But you also heard its roots as a kind of holdover of a vocal music style. You could also imagine it being sort of a madrigal being sung to that. And uh, and you can certainly imagine it being, being th- in theater, I mean, I think I played one of those when I was, at a, when I was working for a Shakespeare festival we, uh, for one of the Shakespeare plays set in Italy. That, Boncario, was a perfect composer for something like Romeo and Juliet or Merchant of Venice or Othello. He was a contemporary of Shakespeare, so it was happening at the same time. So that's what you would play if you wanted to evoke an Italian setting for the gentlemen of Verona or what have you.
0: So it sounds like this is happening in the 1600s, the 1700s. We get to the middle of the 1700s, and you already mentioned before this father figure for the string quartet. Many consider Haydn, Franz Josef Haydn, to be the father of the string quartet because while he did not invent this idea, he didn't, he didn't invent putting these instruments together, he certainly made them very, very popular. But what's so interesting for me is that He fell into this whole idea. He was like around 18 or 20 years old, I believe, and he was asked by this baron Carl von Josef Edler von Fernberg. That's a very long name. But he was asked, hey, can you write some music for me? And it was basically just an ad hoc group, whoever was available, and it happened to be two violins, viola, and cello. And then Haydn wrote for this and just kind of fell into it. At a point when he was known as a good musician, But there were thousands of good musicians. He wasn't famous at this point.
1: Right. And what's so interesting is that, in a way, the way that ensemble fell together for Haydn wasn't that much different than the way it fell together for Boncieri. You know, it was, uh, again, it wasn't something that was, you know, obvious. It was something that fit the bill. Sort of like, oh, you need four voices, and here they are. And the 1760s were sort of... uh, interesting period, sort of Wild West. It was kind of like the Baroque era was over, the classical era hadn't quite begun and there was experimentation in the air and people could just kind of throw things against the wall and see what stuck. And in this way, uh, the idea that he recognized in this ad hoc collection of instruments the potential for um, being a new art form was a very lucky break and, uh, and he...
0: Recognized something and made the most of it, which is why he's Papa Haydn. And I have two examples here of this first string quartet by Haydn, literally his his opus one. Here's how he gets into this whole form in the first movement. should remember that kind of opening figure. It's like these hunting horns, isn't it? That's something that we hear a lot in music at this time. And going on to the second movement, I think he's already doing something here that to me is kind of surprising in this first string quartet. For me, having these pizzicato in the first string quartet, something we see all throughout the rest of musical history, I don't know if it's just so innovative or was it just so commonplace at the time to have something played like that?
1: What I see Haydn doing was being smart. Like, w- what, what he was doing in the first movement was emulating the wind band music at the time, the divertimento, which was based, as you said, on this sort of hunting horn motif. There was a thing called harmony music, which were uh, wind bands that would be – that was the music that you would hear on the streets. That was the music you would hear at outdoor celebrations. And Haydn was taking that as a model and putting that in for strings. And what he was doing in that second movement was saying, like, yes, we can do uh, that kind of music, you know, wind music – but we also have this these cool special effects that you should know about and we have these cool things that distinguish us from winds and i think so he was sort of at the same time operating within an expected pocket sort of like okay string quartet can be background music just like wind music it can also do these special fun things for the people who actually uh, pay attention and uh, as a sort of a novelty act and you can look how versatile it is it slices it dices
0: that's really interesting because I wouldn't think with his first string quartet that he's just kind of writing in his you know late teens or 20s or whatever, where he would be having such foresight almost as a business sense, hey, this is what strings can do. We can do these effects. We can imitate these um, horns. We can have these pizzicato effects. Almost thinking like a business person, there's a lot here that, well, you could pay me to write. Well, that is... Why Haydn got where he was
1: was because, you know, he was actually homeless for a while. He, and he, but he worked his way into the aristocracy. He worked his way into the nobility. He was a very enterprising young man. And that he, we owe his career to the fact that he was such an enterprising young man. And, that's, and this is an example of that. You know, yes, he was definitely thinking in a business sense, even in his teens.
0: So that's his Opus 1, a set of string quartets. He kind of leaves it for a while, doesn't he? But he comes back and really makes this string quartet form really popular with his Opus 20.
1: Yes. Uh, That was sort of throwing down the gauntlet, sort of like this could be... You know, first of all, it was a great – it's almost like a board game, right, um, where, you, where people would buy this so they could open it up and then play it with through the, with their friends. But it was also a way of sort of a calling card with other customers, uh, with, other, with other musicians. People took notice and, you know, because even though he was on, only in this one little obscure corner of Europe, Opus 20 could be with, spread all over Europe. And everybody got this and they said, well, wow, whoever wrote this – is, you know, the guy, you know, he's, he's, he's doing things that nobody else is doing. And he's sort of formalizing this thing that was sort of, you know, without form and void in terms of, you know, what do you do with a string quartet? Sort of like, oh, and Haydn was showing us, this is what you do with a string quartet. You know, it can be like a sonata, but also its own thing and and you can get and you give everybody a turn so that you know, the chalice has something interesting the second violin has something interesting and you draw on f- different kinds of forms you know you can have fugues and canons and variations and
0: and it's just a great palette for composers to be able to experiment one of the last things you said is really important at this point giving everyone something interesting to do because before this point it seems like a lot of string quartets It was still a holdover from a century before where we have these beautiful violin soloists. And as you go get lower in instruments down to the cello, it's kind of like, oh, well, I'm still kind of accompanying. But here in his Opus 20, his Quartet Number 4, already in this first movement, we hear something different happening. ¶¶ That's quite a leap from his early quartets. Oh, it's absolutely a leap, and
1: um, in the context of 1772, that is that's revolutionary. Um, that w- what what Haydn was doing then, um, because there's no whiff of the Baroque era. You know, with a lot of music at that time had. There's no whiff of oh, this is repurposed opera music or repurposed church music. It's really what it is for itself. It's like, it's music that was really intended for this as an end in itself or this combination of
0: instruments. We're just kind of getting a taste of these quartets by Haydn. they I mean, I, I enjoy a lot of them. His Opus 20, it sounds like made the form very popular. His Opus 76, like 20 something years later, right? That it was with this set of quartets in his Opus 76 that he even pushed it to a new level. Is that correct?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, Opus 76 was really when string quartets were making the transition to being concert music and not just music for... Um, not just a board game, you know, but music for everybody. Music that you, there was always some limits, right? You couldn't make it too hard because you didn't want to scare off the amateurs, you didn't want to scare off people who didn't like anything that was too difficult. But by the time he wrote his Open 76, Haydn had nothing to lose. I mean, he was all, he was, you know, a superstar. He was, and it was sort of taken for granted, like, okay, he's going to raise the quartet to this next level, and it's not going to be like, say, l or Dittersdorf or Hofmeister, these other uh, publishers slash composers who were around that were uh, writing music specifically for sales for the 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 sort of amateur market. And and he was doing something really, really different uh there that you know put it in in a completely different different plane. And um and sort of invented the idea that, oh, a string quartet could be not only fun to listen to and, you know, interesting background music and interesting thing to play, but also a sublime work of art on this on the same level as a symphony or an oratorio or a piano sonata.
0: And what I love with this kind of Opus 76 here is that Now, Haydn, as you said, is an absolute rock star. He's pushed this quartet to new forms, and you see a lot of composers do this. They have nothing to prove. They have set the trend here. And it sounds like at times, when they get to this point, they often start having fun with something that was around a century ago. They go to find something old, and maybe they can make it new. (laughs) ¶¶ Is now brought back and made in a new transformation. It's a dance band. We got the kind of an accordion right, and then the the violin up top.
1: Right. Well, you know, he had been spending a lot of time in London just before this, and it's very very likely that he heard bagpipe bands in on the streets of London uh from from Scotland or from northern uh England when he does a drone it's because you know he knows what it could be and he's been and he's been in the sweaty dance floor where people were uh dancing to that and he understands the the roots of that and so bringing that into a string quartet it's like a gourmet chef bringing an earthy note, sort of like a raw leaf, you know, so that you could, that you eat along with the, um, you know, the the highly um, sophisticated palate. It's uh, you know he's it's like Thomas Paine, like nothing is foreign to him. You know, he's the master of all.
0: And someone who really picked up with what Haydn was doing right away, I think, was. Mozart, right? Although much younger than Haydn at this time in the 80s going into, well, when Mozart died in 1791, but in the 80s, he was writing a lot of quartets. In fact, he dedicated a whole set to Haydn.
1: Yes. uh, Mozart wrote uh, a series of quartets, uh, a set of six quartets that he dedicated to Haydn. And uh, Haydn was so moved that that um, prompted the famous quote that Haydn made to Leopold Mozart, Mozart's father, about, you know, before God, this is the most gifted musician I have ever known or could know about. I mean, Mozart and Haydn had always been friends, but I think it was really with that set of quartets that Mozart wrote that Haydn realized, like, oh, we're equals. Oh, you know, in fact, maybe he's actually the better one, you know. He's, you know, Haydn sort of acknowledging. And Haydn, you know, was, he didn't have the same kind of relationship that he later had with Beethoven where there was a little bit of bad blood and, and competition. Like, you know, he just, he wanted the best for Mozart and he acknowledged that Mozart was the superior genius and uh, there was nothing but love and inspiration and encouragement there.
0: And when you listen to one of his, Haydn quartets, as we call them, Mozart string quartet number 17, specifically, The Hunt, it starts off with that same idea in my head that I heard with that first quartet by Haydn, where we have the strings imitating these, these hunting horns. And then a few quartets later, he goes to something that, for me, I only have been getting into string quartets the last decade at most. It wasn't something I had to do in school or anything. But listening to sometimes, for instance, the opening to Mozart's String Quartet number no. 19, to me, it was almost I thought I was listening to the wrong thing for a second because I thought, this can't be from, you know, the 1780s. This has a very, very dissonant opening. that was so peculiar. Oh yeah.
1: And um and people noticed it at the time. I mean every single thing that Mozart does is legal. I mean it all it all follows, you know, uh if you just if you really dig deep down into the, the analysis it all it all works out. Um so he doesn't cross any lines but he goes right up to them. And the point is a string quartet is where you can do that. You can't really do that you know and I mean he was doing stuff sort of like that in in, in piano music but even there there's sort of it, you can never really get away from the idea that oh here's a guy showing off and in the in the drawing room but with a string quartet you really had the freedom to just go to the limit of what you can do as a composer to your of your creative ability and of what music could be and and we see that with Haydn and Mozart and, and later composers that it was in the medium of the string quartet that they were the most original and most creative and most um, groundbreaking.
0: What I love about music, and especially from this time period, the 1700s, even the 1800s, is that, well, today if I listen to a string quartet by a composer like, um, like Caroline Shaw, she writes a string quartet, and I know she's writing how she wants it to sound back at this time for Mozart and Haydn, there were sometimes constraints or they had to write a certain way to please a certain person. For instance, I think the string quartet number 21 by Mozart was written for someone in the, in the royalty who was actually a cellist. Yeah,
1: the king of Prussia. And you know, you're not going to argue if you're writing for a king who plays the cello. You said, want a, want a cello. And they a cello parts to show off what they can do. You please the king
0: That's what I'm wondering here. I have a little bit from the finale of this quartet, just the opening part of this finale, and we'll take a listen to it first because it is the cello that sets the scene here. So I'm wondering... Is that too hard? Is that just hard enough? I assume he doesn't want to write something so hard that the king embarrasses himself. It also sounds kind of high. It sound is he really writing this specifically for this cello? Yeah,
1: he well, what's interesting about that writing is that the cello is in a very uncomfortable range. It's not it's it's not in its highest range where you could just sort of lay into what we call thumb position and just you're just up there. It's in the sort of in-between, the sort of the crack where you kind of have to do this shifting. It's very risky because the more you shift, the more you move your hand, um, the more um, possibility there is for error and for getting notes out of tune. And I and I even heard that cellist struggling a little bit uh, with that line. And you know, it's possible that you want it to sound hard in a in a way because that's that. I mean. The the good thing about that is that it's an amazing, uh, it's a great range for the cello in terms of projection. But what it means is that it's very exposed. It's so vulnerable. It's so it's exposed in a way that a violin or a viola would not be, and because um, it, it just rings out and it's and the other instruments are trying to hide behind the cello in its upper register. So it it can be very precarious. Of course, when it's well played, it's it's beautiful and it's a lovely piece. That cello's must have been really good, or Maybe Mozart was trying to make a point. (laughs) Like, be careful what you wish for, you know?
0: Because Haydn sometimes (laughs) did that, would write something to to make a point. And we'll get into the string quartets of Beethoven right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. And this brings us now, you know, Haydn being the father, Mozart coming up in this genre, writing some great things, some challenging things. It brings us to someone who took the string quartet to a new level. That's Beethoven. In fact, his first quartet, I think it comes from around 1798, towards the end of when some of the Haydn music we're listening to.
1: Yes, and he waited. Mozart wrote string quartets when he was a boy, and as you pointed out, Haydn started writing when he was pretty young too. And Beethoven had enough perspective, sort of like... Okay, I have to get ready. I have to do all these other genres first before I touch the string quartet. Because if I put out my string quartets, they have to be good. They're competing with Haydn. They're competing with Mozart. They're uh, they're making a statement. Because that's because by the end of the of the eighteenth century, that's what they were. It was a signature. It was a calling card. Sort of like, oh, well, we know what Beethoven can do with the piano sonata. We know we can what we can do with the piano trio. You know, and they're sort of waiting, the critics are sort of like, "Okay, what does he do with the string quartet? And you have to strike exactly the right balance of of you know paying homage to your forebears and you know and not deviating too much from the Haydn Mozart template, but also making your own not just copying them either and making your own statement and your own personality and voice heard.
0: A lot of what you're saying now is ringing true in my mind about this first string quartet, which has, it's well, maybe like his first symphony, it's picking up from Haydn. He's doing a lot more, or he's changing the form around a little bit, but it's not unrecognizable. Here's a little bit from Beethoven's very first string quartet. and i hear how his the harmony is thicker but there's still a lot of this you know passing a line off and then coming in together violins cellos and then everyone
1: yeah it works on a number of levels and i can hear how and i think most, certainly people at the time could hear what he got from haydn in that because haydn did did uh, sonorities that were very similar to that but also what beethoven brought to the party and what he added and the kind of uh, expression that he did, the kind of thing that he did that was distinct from either Haydn or Mozart or anyone else. And there's also something a bit symphonic about it, but symphonic not in the way of the early quartets of, of Mozart and Haydn, but something that uh, created the idea that these four instruments were more than the sum of their parts and, uh, and really utilizing going to the next level of utilizing that resonance that I was talking about to create this this sound, this really, really large sound that was uh, larger than anybody else had gotten out of just these four instruments.
0: So let's dig into these quartets of Beethoven for a little bit because we think of Beethoven's music often in three different periods, early, middle, and late. And I've heard you describe very kind of fascinating how these kinds of things fit together or kind of evolve, like the early period is these are quartets that you get together and you can play with friends. The middle period is great concert music, and then the late period is is what
1: late period is what I would call headphone music <laughs> um I say wearing headphones. it's music that was written you know when Beethoven was deaf at this time, so he wasn't really thinking he he couldn't even conceive of. I mean, he obviously, he still had an oral memory of being in a concert hall and what that experience was. But on a level, he almost didn't care. Like, he was writing music for his own inner ear. They were tremendous. They were sort of stood there as a tremendous challenge for composers,
0: really, to this day. And we're going to get into some of those very challenging, sometimes to listen to moments. But let's jump back to the middle period. As we heard in the early period, it is picking up and moving things forward from Haydn, but in his middle period, something that, again, that you said, being a cellist, of course, yourself, I mean, you know this like the back of your hand. For me, it's interesting to hear when you said the strings, Beethoven recognizes these four instruments, they're larger than the sum of their parts, and there's a also a symphonic quality to them, because when I hear this string quartet number seven, the opening to this, there is this kind of massive crescendo, and it's something, it does sound larger than the sum of its parts. I just love that so much. And I think a lot of people just aren't familiar enough. We think of, oh, string quartets, I want to hear the symphonies. And it's like, well, these string quartets, they're just as massive. Well, the fact that
1: he dared to do that amazing crescendo at the beginning of his seventh quartet was really a sort of, there was really a shout out to the world sort of, you know, because nobody before Beethoven would have dared to spend that much time building up to something with just four string instruments. <laughs> you know, there's there's only so much, you know, you would think there's only so much you could do. Like, oh, you save that kind of time for an orchestra. And even people weren't even doing that with orchestras. Um, but, like, you couldn't do that, like... You couldn't really do that with wind instruments because they don't have the dynamic range. They don't have the. Uh, you couldn't. You couldn't even really do that with piano. It has. It would be a different sort of thing. It's something. It's a kind of build up. A kind of uh, strength gathering that is unique to string instruments. And by doing that, he's. He, this is his way of introducing the string quartet to the concert hall. Where, um, and, you know, if you've ever seen a chamber group in a large hall. There's always a little awkward because like you're there and there's only four people in a space made for an orchestra. And how do you make that work? And this is how Beethoven made that work is you have them take up space, take up time this huge palette so i mean so he was establishing from the beginning like strings can get this soft and get that loud and have this kind of intensity and this you know he was showing off the entire bag of tricks from the get go and he got your attention and and people said okay and it's also the kind of music that is really made for professionals. Like, no, you would never play that in the living room or, you know, or it wouldn't be the same thing. You would just give up in frustration if you tried to just do that for fun, you know, karaoke night with your string quartet. No, you'd have to. I like that. <laughs>
0: karaoke night with your string quartet. This is 1806. Beethoven's in his uh, 30s. And in the same year, he has a string quartet number nine. There's some interesting things happening in this one I wanna hear from you about. And that is. If we think back to that Haydn in that first quartet, in the second movement there was pizzicato. And you often hear in-string quartets, in this time before and after, when there's pizzicato, it's often together, as a group, we're plucking these chords and things along. But Beethoven in his string quartet number nine, again, he realizes there's more to this sound, there's more we can do, and not everyone has to do maybe the same thing. It just grabs your ears, and it's, I mean, this is still, this is his middle period in 1806.
1: Also, I mean, what you probably don't appreciate, listening to that beautifully engineered performance where the you could hear all the four instruments with beautifully resonant and, you know, and beautifully mixed. Strings couldn't really do what you just heard, so it took a real act of imagination for Beethoven to be able to say, well, someday they're going to be able to do justice to this music, and I'm writing it now to kind of push the art forward. This is what I want it to sound like, and I'm just going to do it. So so, the musicians have to come up to that. You know, the idea of a cellist being able to get that kind of resonant sound out of an instrument, you know, for for a bass line and hold on to it, that was... um, you know you couldn't take that for granted you couldn't for take for granted that you were in a concert hall would, that would be able to pick up that sound you know you couldn't you couldn't take anything for granted and so that's really beethoven being a visionary uh the fact that he had that sound for those four instruments in his head and the you know and basically the art form came to meet him so that they could play
0: that music so beethoven's early period his middle period Again, we're just kind of tasting, jumping into little bits of things. Let's jump into his late period now. We were talking about it's kind of headphone music. It sounds like you turn the lights down a little bit, you, know, you get comfortable in a chair, and you just get into these quartets.
1: Yeah, what to listen to after you've worn out all your Pink Floyd.
0: Yes. I have a little bit of his string quartet, number 15. Now, I think these were actually... That's the funny thing or the difficult thing with these works is that there's string quartet numbers, there's opus numbers, and then numbers within that. And then here, I think this was written slightly out of order. I think 15 was written before 14? Yes. Okay, so 15 in 1825, we're really in the final years of uh, Beethoven's life, his opus 132, his string quartet number 15. With this quartet, you were talking before to me about the slow movement being significant that he wrote it, during or after a kind of illness.
1: Yes. He always had health problems. And, um, and, in, ter- and in fact, this was only about two years before he actually did die. Um, but uh, he did recover and he thought that he had licked it. And so he wrote this movement, as he said, um, a, a holy song of Thanksgiving uh, for having survived an illness.
0: And this movement is outrageously beautiful. That was just a snippet. And you were talking before about taking up time within the quartet where Beethoven is expanding that way. He does that here too, it sounds like. And you're exactly right. You have to hear this with headphones.
1: You, yeah, because hearing it live just doesn't cut it because you're not close enough to the... You're not, you have to be surrounded by this music. You have to be inside it. You think you have your favorite... Sublime string quartet for or string orchestra piece or classical piece that you think is just the one. This is it, this beats them all. I I guarantee it. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, 17 minutes of your life that you will you will want to revisit again and again and again in your own times of wherever your heart is, wherever your health is. It's comforting and it's involving and it creates this universe. That is really all about what Beethoven was had on his mind, which was healing.
0: And we have a few more late quartets to enjoy here. Next one, number fourteen. Again, that was fifteen. We're going to fourteen now, which was written afterwards. For me, it sounds like a very peculiar opening.
1: is a sonority that really sounds like nothing else. It almost sounds like outer space in a way. He's taking a fugue that's n- not like any other fugue that has ever been written, and it's so slow, and again, it's it's headphone music, and it takes string music and chamber music and music itself to a new level. Beethoven considered this his greatest composition, and he had already written all the symphonies. He had already written even 132, and... Um, and what makes it such a unique composition is, is how he goes from that opening all the way through seven movements. It's, it's a piece in seven movements. All the way through the end, which is this great cathartic finale. And, um, and how he points, the, you know, he starts with that very slow music, and then he goes through all this sort of different shades of consciousness toward the final finale. <laughs> ¶¶
0: Something that I've kind of started to hear, something that you really hear from, it sounds like this point forward and in his final years, he becomes very into this rhythm, like this dotted rhythm, da, 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 to a point where it sounds difficult to continue to keep up with that rhythm, but it's something, it's not something I hear in a lot of his earlier music
1: no i mean it's a martial rhythm right uh that's what they call a dotted rhythm that it's associated with army bands and and the like but it's there's something very very driving about it and and you're right he does something with this rhythm that he hadn't uh done with it before and that's there's probably nothing more intense in terms of a rhythm that envelops you, that draws you in, that makes you that demands that you listen to it. And it's interesting because in both of the slow movements we were just talking about, it's Beethoven is going into these outer realms. And in this movement, he sounds like Beethoven, but it's almost like turbocharged Beethoven. It's like it's Beethoven at his most Beethoven in a way that he could not possibly be even when he was doing some something like the Appassionata Sonata or even the Fifth Symphony. It's something that even beyond that in terms of, okay, you know, this is Beethoven in stormy minor mode and the essence of Beethoven.
0: We have a couple more from his late period. Number 16, again, I think this is maybe his last major work as well. And his string quartet number 16, again, he's combining the strings as are normally played with a bow, and also some pizzicato here, which I think is pretty interesting. When you first hear it, it's like maybe you think, oh, it's maybe it's kind of like early Haydn where the cello was still playing this bass line from the Baroque period, but it's not.
1: Well, what's interesting about this work is that you know, after he wrote 131, which is the one that we heard just before this, you know, he said, OK, this is my greatest work. That's it. You know, and he didn't he wasn't even particularly uh, interested in writing more quartets. He, he There was a 10th symphony that he was really eager to start working on. But then he realized that he had a leftover movement because he was originally going to st- uh, end 131 with another slow movement. And then he realized, no, he's gonna—he can't really top that—that uh, that dotted rhythm, that fast movement that we, that we talked about. So he had this spare movement that he built this quartet around. And Beethoven had this habit all throughout his life of whenever he wrote a truly groundbreaking work like the Eroica, like the Fifth Symphony, like the Seventh Symphony, like uh, the Waldstein's uh, Piano Sonata, the Kreuzer's Violin Sonata, he always followed it with something that. You know, follow the rules. He always went back to Haydn. He always uh, went back to. He wrote something like one for me, one for posterity, one for Papa Haydn, and it's a beautiful quartet. I mean, don't get me wrong; It's it's a gorgeous quartet. But yeah, it's he's going back to Haydn.
0: I love just how it's like a. It's fun. It's precocious. It's like a big warm hug, and we can kind of leave Beethoven here now by going back just a little bit. I think it's the year before he wrote this movement this work that confused people at the time listeners musicians especially his publisher and it's one that challenges people still today and it's this grand fugue for string quartet i want to play a little bit of it and then i want to hear from you james What's happening?
1: Well, what I've always thought about this work is that I think, you know, Beethoven had a coffee habit, and I uh, think <laughs> it sort of sometimes. Hmm, I wonder if that coffee got out of little control or something like that. It's a twenty-minute fugue, and that goes through all these. And, you know, he wrote it as the finale to his B-flat major quartet, and it's the only instance where Beethoven ever kind of centered himself because he voluntarily dropped this movement uh, and made it into an independent piece and substituted uh, something that was more in scale with the rest of the quartet. And in a way, I think he was anticipating what a lot of 20th century composers would would see in the quartet, the idea that there's something to be said about just the sheer sound of the string instruments and what does what do four string instruments sound when they're you know basically just scraping their instruments They're you know what what does that sound like what is it when you just push these musicians to the limit, what does basically trashing your instrument sound like while you're playing? What you do, it's in B flat major. It's an impossible key anyway for strings, and uh, you know I've played this and it's it's miserable. It's just like it's it's really really no fun because it's just it's just so hard and and it's relentless. You just you know it's it's like you get tendonitis just from looking at it. You know, it's just uh, it's. Really... I get
0: tendonitis hearing it. <laughs> now the string quartet after Beethoven, it's kind of like, it seems like his symphonies, they continued, but composers were intimidated by Beethoven. Schubert was one that seems like was pretty successful in following Beethoven's symphonies, also string quartets. I love the um, Death and the Maiden, which is just the name alone is kind of cool, but the sound is is quite imposing as well. And going even further than that, out of this Austrian and, and German heritage, we go to... French composers like Debussy and Ravel, who seem to be painting with an entirely different brush and palette compared to Beethoven.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, Beethoven basically, at the end of the day, was a rhythmic composer. That's its rhythm, which drove the development, the form of the piece. It's what draws the listener in. And Schubert was a melodic composer and does this other thing of just writing a beautiful melody and then writing another one. And it's all a stream of consciousness and it's all, in a way, really modern in terms of its attitude. Like, it's not really trying to do anything and yet it does something and it's a, and it's a story that it's telling that takes you from the beginning to the end and it's kind of hard to know how it works and somehow it does. And uh, what I will say is that Schubert's late Quartets, there was a path forward from them. There was, a, there was something that later composers you could you could engage with them in a way that you couldn't really engage with late Beethoven. There was something about Schubert's quartets that opened the path for Schumann and Wagner, even you know, and and you know, in terms of a sonority, in terms of the kind of space that it takes up. Remembering, you know, he so much of his output were, were songs, and so he had this very vocal quality. Uh, this idea of telling a story and the the slow movement of this of the Death of the Maiden is based on a song called Death and the Maiden, which is why it has that name. But he, but even though the first movement, it, you know, it doesn't directly quote from that same song, but it's it's like the the overture to that drama that's going to play out later on.
0: It sounds like Schubert with this, you know, beautiful melodies and more importantly, maybe the stream of consciousness, set the way forward, as you said, for composers like Wagner, but maybe also I'm thinking of Debussy and Ravel. I love these string quartets, and the way they transition from one melody or or one section to another, I think, is, is pretty remarkable. Actually, I have examples of both of those things from both of their quartets, and Debussy and Ravel, they each only wrote one quartet. Here is a little example of the Debussy. The way he downshifts into that next section, it's just it just slides right into it.
1: Well, it's interesting because I, I think you know I, I actually played in a gamelan orchestra at once uh, at one point, and a gamelan is an Indonesian percussion orchestra that's these different kinds of gongs and bells, and they're in a very specific kind of mode. And W. C. got to hear a gamelan uh, when a gamelan orchestra played at an international exposition in Paris. And I can hear in this quartet not only the modes of the gamelan, but also in a way how you play. Because a gamelan is a single instrument, it's a very, very specific set of gongs that are all meant to be played together. So it's like, you know, you get 20 people all playing different aspects of the same instrument. And you sort of get that feeling from this WC quartet that they're all, that there's a lot going on. But it's it's one machine. It's one it, it's one sound. It's unified. It's it, it, even though it's there's a lot of diversity going on. It's it's all within this one sonority. Um, this very unique sonority, and, uh, and and that was Debussy's gift. Just as Schubert and Beethoven had their gifts, you know, Debussy uh, was about color, and you know, and exploring new sonorities, um, and the and everything else sort of added
0: into that. And just that one work, you know, really sort of set like, oh, and a quartet could do this too. I love the diversity in the sound and the ideas that you were just talking about with the the gamelan and everything. And that's something that happens post-Beethoven, really into the late 1800s when you think of technology and just the world getting smaller. We now, you can travel by ship, a lot safer than you could in previous times, and so as the world becomes smaller, as composers are exposed to different sounds and different cultures from all over the world, you get this new sound, and you also get a kind of—if you look at you know evolution of dinosaurs, you know they all came from I don't know a pterodactyl or something—and you see that one gets to something else, and they split off to this, split off to that. That starts to happen with string quartets in music, where. Sounds and styles start to really change a lot where you have maybe two composers write a string quartet and they sound nothing like each other compared to maybe Mozart and Haydn, which are different but sound pretty similar. Right. Now we have, I mean, the great um, American quartet by Dvorak. That's a favorite. It's one of my favorites. But going further to that, Ravel, who also has this ability to shift between. One idea, one melody, one section to another. I think it's it's similar to uh, Debussy's. Mm-hmm. The way it sings, the way he's using the cello with the pizzicato, but it's very, very sparse. So when it happens, it changes the sound. It changes the mood. Even though it's only a few seconds, you kind of forget... And then it just kind of lifts you into the next part.
1: Yes, absolutely. And also with Ravel, there's always a little. Of course, this was in 1903, which was before jazz or cabaret music. But that was, those were later um, influences on him. But in a way, I almost feel like Ravel was an influence on that, as <laughs> it worked both ways. Like I could hear this sort of idea of like in a way, Ravel is bringing us back to a more intimate space.
0: It makes me wish now Ravel also wrote another quartet maybe a few decades later when he was even saying in papers, look, composers, you need to pay attention to American jazz and incorporate it. He even has a movement and a violin sonata just called the blues. And although Ravel only wrote this one quartet, there's moments in here that are used in movies. I know um, Wes Anderson's Royal Tenenbaums in the opening. There's a great section from this quartet and things start to really split and... Kind of in in intense ways as well, also politically, because we have one of the great string quartet composers of the 20th century, Shostakovich, who wrote music that is just, I don't even know how to compare it to to Beethoven. Right. Well, he
1: he is an heir to Beethoven, let's put it that way. He is certainly one of the composers that was taking up where Beethoven left off in terms of what the quartet could be as what it could express what it could stand for the depths of emotion that it could that it could reach what's interesting about this eighth quartet is that he actually reuses a lot of material that he had used in earlier works like his second piano trio and his 10th symphony but it never comes across as Forcefully and profoundly as it does in this string quartet, and it's almost as if he knew that he he actually blended in his own initials into this piece, DSCH or D E flat C B natural, if you which is how you translate that using the German musical alphabet, and he so he put his own he signed it he put his own signature into this into this work literally, and um, he dedicated it, quote, to the victims of fascism and war. And he wrote it in 1960, which is around when a lot of composers, you know, perhaps belatedly were coming to terms with just how much loss had been endured in the 20th century. This perhaps is the greatest of all of them, I'd say.
0: And what I love about Shostakovich with these, and you were saying he's he's kind of picking up from Beethoven. When you said that, it it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier when you mentioned time. Beethoven is now expanding time in the quartet like you made with the symphony and giving more development to literally just the sound. And Shostakovich, when you're listening to his quartets, they are extraordinarily powerful for all the reasons you outlined. And he has this ability to create tension and then just have this absolutely beautiful musical release. So we have two examples here from his quartet number 8 some of it might sound familiar this first section here which it's just pure tension it's it's relentless and also,
1: I just want to say that that little four-note theme; those were his initials. Just yeah. just so everybody's clear about that. Da da da. That's D. Shostakovich. That that's yeah. his name. He's putting his name out there, and his name in the context of all this energy. I don't even. I don't, anxiety doesn't even begin to cut it. There's something else. There's <laughs> Something even even greater than that going on in terms of a a kind of uh, what what emotion it, it's expressing.
0: Let's listen to where this continues, where it kind of has this payoff, where it leads into this, again, just another very powerful moment.
1: So that... That motive uh, that you heard before you heard uh, uh, his his name that sounded like a dance. Well, it was a dance. It was um, and it was a political statement, a very powerful one. It was Shostakovich's way of communicating his solidarity with the plight of Soviet Jews, and at a time when it was getting increasingly dire. And uh, he used that that Jewish melody in several other works through the years, and. In a way, that's why he got away with it, because had he just come up with that in 1960, he could have gotten in a lot of trouble for uh, this sort of statement against the state. But the fact that it was sort of grandfathered in is like, oh, this is a Shostakovich thing. But he was making a political statement by doing that. But in a way, it's also a triumph because it's sort of like he's saying it. He's... He's getting away with it. He's, he's saying he's saying what he can't say in words. He's saying he's registering a protest through music. And because it's through music and because there's no words, he can just hide behind like, oh, it's just pretty, isn't it? It's just, it's just you know, it's, it's just, you know, I'm just being emotional, you know. But, of course, he's, yeah, he's there's a lot more to it going on than that.
0: It's extraordinary. We started with Bianchiri and the Baroque period. Haydn, Mozart, all of the, just the magnitude of Beethoven leading up into the 21st century with a composer like Shostakovich quite literally putting his life on the line writing for this form, a string quartet. Through the centuries, it's evolved the sound and everything, but it's for string players in this way, well, playing music by composers who have taken that challenge of the French omelet of music for this. And I think, James, you'll be able to give us kind of a, a who's who or what to listen to maybe from each of these composers. Find stuff you love. Of course, in the, the 20th century, we have all kinds of quartets, music from Amy Beach, Philip Glass, Florence Price, and just so many more. So much to enjoy. And do you have anything else for us, James, for the string quartet? I would just say, I mean, string
1: quartets are great things to sample. It's a sonority that can fit a lot of different moods. I think we've heard that today. Because it's a form that composers can be so personal in and really do their best. I mean I think, you know, in general, if you if you're trying to sample the new composer, what did they do in a string quartet? That's the first stop. You know, like just like the chef and the omelet. It's like, you know, that's if you can do a string quartet, then you can do pretty much anything else.
0: That's a good point. Well, thank you so much, James. I know I and everyone has really enjoyed your expertise here on the String Quartet. Thank you. Thank you, John. This has been lots of fun. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For James Jacobs' 10 string quartets to listen to, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. (laughs)